Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Martin Puckner. He is the Byron and an Intervene Professor of Drama and of English and Comparative Literature at Harvard University. He serves as the founding director of the Mellon School of Theatre and Performance Research at Harvard University. He is the author of several books and today we're going to focus on his latest one, The Language of Thebes. My, family obsession, my family's obsession with the secret code the Nazis tried to eliminate. So, Dr. Puckner, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me, Ricardo. Okay, so this language of Thebes is Rotwelsch, right? Is that the correct pronunciation? It, it is, as far as anyone can tell. <laughs> okay, so that, that's, uh, that's interesting. So, I... We are not sure how people pronounce the words in this language? The, of course, because the language is so old, it goes back to the Middle Ages, it's very hard to know how people pronounced it. Though I shouldn't say it's not that we have no idea. You know, there are some ancient languages like, like uh, 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 cuneiform, Assyrian cuneiforms that no one really knows how to pronounce. The same is not true of Rotwelsch, in part because most of the speakers had a German language background, uh, though they would be also speaking extremely different dialects at different times. So, you, you know, you, we can imagine a whole range of pronunciations. So, uh, tell us more about the background for this language. I mean, what is this language? Where did it start? Who, who spoke it? Yeah, so it's it as I mentioned, it go, really goes back many hundreds of years. The first indications of of it are uh, come from the Middle Ages, uh, and so it it is very old, uh, and it's spoken primarily in German-speaking Central Europe, broadly construed. So, from the Rhine to Prague, uh, that would be sort of the geographic area. So they're in further east. There would be more Slavic uh, influences, but it's basically uh, within German-speaking Central Europe since the Middle Ages. That's a sort of geographic and historical. Uh, these are the two axes. Uh, now, and you ask who spoke it, so that now it becomes really interesting because it's there. There, there are a lot of misconceptions, and it's at the same time hard to know. So it was essentially, I like to think of it as a language of the road. So it was basically for people who didn't have a fixed home, who found themselves on the road. Um, and so who were these people? They could be journeymen who were traveling from master to master to apprentice themselves to different masters and who had sort of fallen out of that lifestyle. I have biographies like that, or someone who is a cobbler, apprentice, becomes a journeyman, starts to fight with his masters, and somehow realizes that there is a whole nother life that could be had, the life of the road, and so drifts into that lifestyle, for example. Or, you know, escaped convicts, or uh, people who drop out of settled life for one reason or another. Uh, one big uh, a peak in this population, for example, came in Central Europe, came in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, which caused huge populations to be displaced, to be homeless, their villages burned down, they found themselves on the road. So there are many, many reasons why someone might find themselves in, in that itinerant lifestyle, in that sort of vagabond 
lifestyle. And that's when these speakers would be introduced to this language of the road and start speaking it. So it's not really the case that we can pinpoint precisely a specific place where it originated, or can it? No, there isn't. No, that in fact, as so often with the origins of something, especially that's so old, it's very hard to pinpoint, uh, especially since the language was a purely spoken language. So there are almost no written sources. So whenever the language sort of pops up in the written archive, it will be sort of for various complicated reasons that someone notes, oh, there's this strange language of the road that people speak. Uh, and usually the people who will write about it are also hostile to it. So we'll be very skeptical of it or even instill fear uh, in, in their readers. So it's very hard to uh, pinpoint anything definite about its origins. All we know that suddenly in the Middle Ages, there are reference to different authors who write uh, and whose writings get preserved will make reference to it. And I can speak about some of them maybe in a second. And so it's more like it, it's under the radar screen for a long time of, of written language. And then it sort of pops up here and there. And then you have to sort of put together these different very scant pieces of evidence and to create a picture, try to hypothesize where, you know, where, where, where does it exist? How developed is it? And then as time goes on, there are a little bit more sources uh, later on. By the way, is this a language that's still with us today? Are there still speakers of this language nowadays? Um, you know, that was a question that I had in my mind. Uh, and as maybe in a second, we'll have more occasion to talk about the reason why I got interested in this language is because I inherited this archive from my uncle who who devoted his life to this language and he introduced me to it uh, when when I was a child. And so I knew that he had still met some speakers of this language in the 70s when he did most of his research on this language. So, but I thought when I started this project that their prop, that that language had basically disappeared. Uh, um, but then by the end, I realized that that was actually not true. And uh, I was able to make indirect contact with a group of itinerants in Switzerland uh, uh, who spoke a kind of successor language to Rotwelsch, a language, an itinerant dialect or language that, that had a lot of Rotwelsch terms in it. So to my surprise, uh, I realized that parts of the language at least still exist today. But I mean, I would imagine that since its beginning and particularly across the Middle Ages and to the modern times, I mean, it has been influenced by other languages as well. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, this is a good moment to talk a little bit about what kind of language this is, because linguists would, strictly speaking, actually not call it a full language, they would call it a sociolect, the kind of, and it's sometimes also called a professional language of the itinerant underground. So what that means is that it doesn't have its own grammar. So the grammar is imported from German. So German, in a sense, lends its grammar to this language. And then most of the terms and expressions and verbs, all these meaning-making entities, they are imported from other languages. So from German, a lot from Yiddish and via Yiddish Hebrew, from Czech, 
from Romani, the, the, the language of Sinti and Roma, from all different languages, even a little bit of Latin, uh, because they were itinerant students who would also find themselves sometimes drifting into the underground. So and they, of course, knew Latin. So, uh, so there, it's a real language mixture. And then what happens, and that's what I found so interesting, is that when these different terms from all these different languages, including, of course, also German, arrive in this language, they change their meaning, they shift their meaning, so that even if you are a German speaker or a Yiddish speaker, to mention the two languages that donated the largest number of words to this language, you wouldn't understand what's going on. So it's this real combination of words and, and then these words change their meaning and drift in meanings, or maybe sometimes the speakers deliberately hit their meanings, so created secret meanings, which is why it was often seen as a secret language. Right, but the fact that this language drew influence from all of these sorts of languages, languages like Yiddish, Hebrew, German, and so on, does it have anything to do with the fact that the people who developed this language were originally speakers of these other languages and came from these different sorts of origins? You're, you're absolutely right, Ricardo. So in, it, as far as we can tell, most speakers were not, it, the Rotwelsch was not their native tongue. Though I mentioned there are certain periods uh, for like the aftermath of the 30 year war, when there were such large groups sometimes groups of 50 or 100 people who would be roaming around as a group. And of course, children would be growing up in this milieu. So they are, they, they, you know, they may, they, some children may have grown up bilingually, so to speak. Uh, um, and there, there's one source that suggests that. But for the most part, uh, you would be, as I mentioned, you would be uh, a member of a different class or, or society, let's say uh, an apprentice, and you wouldn't know this language, and it's only once you drifted into this milieu, this that's why it's called a sociolect, the language of a particular milieu, uh, uh, that you would be sort of inducted into it and you would start to speak it as a kind of second language, so to speak. Yeah. Is it that people can talk about everything using this language or is it focused on particular topics that perhaps were important or useful for the users of this particular language? Uh, that's a great question and I would say mostly the latter. And, and this is interesting for me because it also means that the language is in a sense registers the kind of life the speaker's head. It's almost like a window a little bit into this otherwise very inaccessible world. So there are certain areas of experience that really dominate uh, this language. And from that, you can sort of reverse engineer the life experience of, of their speaker. So for example, everything having to do with food, very important. What kind of food can you find in a certain area? Also though, lots of words for police and being arrested because these speakers often existed in a kind of gray area of illegality. They didn't have passports. Sometimes they were also in a criminal milieu. There's definitely overlap. Um, and so they were, they were always on the run from the police. So they had a lot of terms for being imprisoned, being chased by the police, different kinds of police, uh, um, warning signs about uh, aggressive policemen, ideas about which areas were more lenient towards itinerants than others. So all of that uh, uh, was also 
uh, uh, clearly expressed in the language. And as I said, from that, as a, as a sort of researcher, someone who's trying to get a sense of the actual life experience, uh, the language and the areas in which this language is particularly well-developed uh, um, is, is particularly interesting in that respect. So do we know if this language is less complex in terms of its vocabulary, particularly in comparison to the languages which gave rise to it? So, um, so less complex, it depends. I think that for the speakers, it was, I mean, I think languages are tools in many ways. And so sure. for these speakers, it was the language they needed. And so, you know, so as I mentioned, for certain areas like uh, running away from justice or, or, or dodging policemen, it was extremely complex, more complex probably than, you know, the vocabulary of, of, of you and me have in, in, in that area. It was also the other feature that was important for these speakers is that it was, it was sometimes seen as a secret language and the police often thought that these speakers had deliberately created an, a secret language to escape detection from the police. I think that's not quite right. I don't think that's true. But I certainly think that the fact that this was a language specific to a particular milieu, it is like a jargon, you know, it's uh, and so it, it allowed these speakers to communicate very efficiently uh, uh, while being incomprehensible to an outsider. So and that's true of any professional jargon. You know, I'm a literary scholar. We, we use lots of jargon. I try not to, but nevertheless. And so, you know, it, it, so I think just to speak of it in terms of complexity, I'm not always sure that that's the best way uh, to do it. I, I would say, let's look at the way this language was used, what needs in the speakers and in the life they led, this language fulfilled, and, and these functions, it fulfilled very well, better than other languages, which is why it probably emerged in the first place. Yeah, I understand. Does it have a written form or is it simply spoken? Yeah. So. Um, this, the language was really a spoken language. Um, okay. So, um, and, that, and, and that's why it's so hard to find uh, any kind of documents about it. So uh, then there, and, and so that's one problem. The second problem is, and I hinted it to that before, that the documents that are, exist are usually hostile to the language. So to give you one example, one of the first larger texts that mentioned Rot Welsh and, and give us about 200 words from the language was written by Martin Luther, uh, edited by Martin Luther, who was very hostile to these itinerants. Uh, and but but it, that's a source. It was a, it was a book called the Book of Vagrants, in which Martin Luther tried to warn people, upright citizens, uh, about the kinds of tricks beggars use to to trick burghers out of money or to to inspire. Uh, 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 a pity or, or, or something like that. So he warns them of these tricks beggars use to weasel you out of your money. And so he, in the course of talking about it and warning people about it, he mentions this language and saying, you know, you have to be careful. These people, these itinerants uh, have the secret language and they can talk about you and you can understand what they're saying. So you better study up on road Welsh 
so that you can't be so easily tricked. That's the fantasy. That's the, so that that's one source, and there are lots of sources like that. So they're very hostile, and you have to be careful not to believe everything they say about about the speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one fascinating source uh, from the 19th century, and and again, it's in 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 a, in, in a sense a very typical scene. So you have an itinerant who has been. Uh, 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 moving around Bohemia in what's now the Czech Republic, and he crosses into what's now Germany, uh, and he's apprehended by the police in Jena, in East, Eastern Germany, because he doesn't have the right papers, and the police arrest him. They quickly realize that the passports he has are forged, and it turns out that he himself uh, is a forger. Uh, Baumhauer, Ferdinand Baumhauer is his name. Uh, and so the police arrest them and they realize also quickly that he's a root Welsh speaker and they are always eager to understand this language better because they associate it with the criminal underground. So they arrest him and they start to grill him for root Welsh terms. And then they realize that they are very lucky because he is a, a speaker of this language who actually knows how to read and write. It's not something that was that widespread in the itinerant underground, it was not a skill that was that important. But he, uh, Baumhauer, knows how to read and write because he's actually a forger of passports. So that was sort of his profession, if you will, in, in the underground. So what the police do, they sit him down, they sit Baumhauer down and say, write us scenes from your underground world and write them in Rotwelsch. And so this is what Baumhauer does. He writes these scenes of life, little, just sort of little vignettes, uh, 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 but he writes them in Rotwelsch and then he sort of adds a vocabulary list on the side so that these policemen can decipher it. And it's a very strange document. It's, he, he, it's clear that Baumhauer gets into it, writing it, and so he ends up basically writing little plays, even with like stage directions and so on and so forth, even though it's just written for the police. But it, that, that's really more or less the only long source, written source of Rot Welsh, written by, by an actual Rot Welsh speaker. So it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, document. Right. Uh, do we know if these people, these itinerants who spoke Rot Welsh, Uh, if they shared a common group identity? I mean, was there something like that? For example, did they think about themselves as some sort of society or culture? Yes, I think they, I think they did. And this is one of the uh, questions I had throughout this project. And I think it's one of the, the answer is yes. And again, I would say actually that there was this shared language played a big role in creating some kind of shared identity. Um, so I think because I think that's what language essentially pr- creates, it creates a sense of shared community. And especially in this case was a, a, a community that was always on the run, that very, very hard life, the life of the road and always prosecuted by the police. So all these external pressures, you know, contributed to a sort of, sort of a sense of a shared lived experience and the language contributed to that. And so the police, uh, and this is, I think the flip side, the more important flip side to the widespread idea that this is a secret language of thieves. Um, From their perspective, it was really a community that was defined in part by your ability to speak this language. If you became part of this life, 
viewers in a sense inducted into this language. And I would say there's a second piece of evidence and that also comes back to your question about writing because there is one other feature to this language, namely a kind of code of about 50 written signs. So they, they are not a written version of the language. They are not an alphabetic sign, but they were okay. sort of, uh, there were signs that they would leave on the side of the road or on certain houses or in the enter, if you would enter a village uh, carved into a tree um, that would communicate, that would allow other itinerants to navigate this terrain. So for example, a sign like five bars, vertical bars showed there's there's you you have to be careful that you don't land in prison because there is an aggressive policeman um, or for, uh, I, I like the, the sign of the cross uh, means you have to act pious and then you will be given some bread um, or, you know, signs like that. And so that I mean, they're they're wonderful sort of written version of this code of the road, so to speak. But for me, they're also a real sense of of the solidarity of these speakers because they were leaving them for one another, right? The, the, the person who carves that sign into a tree doesn't profit him or herself directly from it, but others do. And so there is this, there is, I, I got, the more I studied these scanned sources, uh, the more I did get a sense of, the, of, of a solidarity of, of the underground that's expressed in the language and in these written signs. So, uh, tell us more about what got you interested in this language. I mean, what's the story behind it? Yeah, it, and it's a, it's a complicated and, and in, in many ways also difficult uh, story uh, that became part of the book as well. Uh, so, as I mentioned, originally I got interested in, in, in this language because of my uncle, uh, who was sort of a bohemian writer, poet, uh, composer, who, um, who at some point in his life discovered this language and, and was so fascinated it that he ended up basically dedicating his entire life to it. Uh, he, he did some field work, he studied the language, he collected expressions, he collected all the sources, including, for example, that one written source that I mentioned, the Baumhauer source, where he writes these Rutwelsch plays, or the Martin Luther treatise, this very aggressive treatise that was written against this language, all these different sources. Um, and then he also starts to incorporate uh, these Rutwelsch terms into his own poetry, and he, and he even starts to translate bits of world literature uh, into Rotwelsch, a, a language that in a sense, he creates a literary version of this uh, uh, itinerant language. And so it's, it's really, he wants to resuscitate this language. He wants to preserve it. He wants to promote it. Uh, he has all kinds of ideas associated with it. Uh, and so that's how I came to know about it and know parts of it as a, as a child growing up with it. Uh, so that was, that's one part. And so this uncle unfortunately died very early in his forties. And I, since I was the only one in the family to be really fascinated by this language, I inherited his archive uh, and, um, you know, have been sort of carrying it around with me for, I don't know, 25 years, always thinking, oh, I want to do something with it. This is this unique archive that I happen to have on this language that's more or less forgotten. I want people to know about it, uh, in a sense, continuing my uncle's work. So that's one, uh, you know, that's one dimension. Uh, but then it 
this sort of family history uh, uh, thread in the book also got a, a darker turn when I uh, realized at some point why my uncle uh, was so fascinated by this language. And that I, I'm pretty sure had to do with his father, my grandfather, who was a historian, historian of names. Um, and as I found out by accident, no one in the family either spoke about it or knew about it. It's unclear, probably a combination of the two, actually was an early Nazi member of the Nazi party. And he wrote about uh, very negatively about Yiddish, for example, uh, and and including, and I was so amazed to read that, and he attacked this language, this Rotwelsch language, because it's in his mind, in his sort of anti-Semitic mind, seemed to associate criminality because it was sort of a language of the underground, itinerant underground, because there are so many Yiddish and Hebrew terms in it with being Jewish, even though probably most speakers were not Jewish. Uh, um, but in any case, so that that it turned out that my grandfather was, you know, I had to discover this horrible past uh, about him, but also that he was in a way the first member of my family to be interested in this strange underground language, albeit very negatively. And then I realized, okay, this must have to do with the fact that then his son, in a sense, I think as a kind of atonement, tried to dedicate his life uh, uh, to, you know, rescuing this language, essentially his father wanted to eliminate. So that's, that became this very unexpected and, uh, you know, dark uh, uh, search in, 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 his, in the history of my family and, and its connection to the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So uh, talking about historians of names, what does the history of names tell us about a specific language? I mean, by studying the history of names, what can we learn more about than uh, the language those names are part of? Yeah, you know, it's, in a sense, that's exactly what my grandfather studied. So he called himself a historian of names. Uh, yeah. He was mostly interested in place names, you know, plain, plain, names of rivers and mountains and so on and so forth. And he could, uh, he, you could, you can in some sense study history of, of migration through, through these, his, you know, these place names. And that's, that's one of the things he did. And in, in, in these primarily, especially two articles that are so especially violent and anti-Semitic, he, he, he shows that, that, you, so the, the the problem, it's not a real problem, but for his anti-Semitic mind, the problem for him was that there are some German-sounding Jewish names and Jewish-sounding German names, and for him, that was a, you know, that was a confusion that needed to be solved. So he turned, for example, to the history of migration in places to say that a certain name, for example, Frankfurter. Uh, was, is, is usually a Jewish name because there's a large Jewish community in Frankfurt and had been for a long time. The Rhine was one of the first places in, 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 in Central Europe to be settled by, by Jewish migrants. But that other names, for example, Nuremberger, was not usually a Jewish name because there's no Jewish settlement for a long time in Nuremberg. So th that, that's, that's sort of, that's how he approached it. Uh, um, you know, putting that, uh, uh, 
fascinating. I agree. The history of names is really a fascinating history. It so happens that my grandfather put that scholarship to really terrible and also absolutely misguided uh, use. But uh, but um, so the the history of of, of place names uh, would would you know al allows you to see patterns of migration, for example. And I think that's I think that's true. Um, and you know the same goes with the history of of, of personal names. Uh, you can see uh, uh, it it it's a way of it, it connects present speakers, you know, living people living today with often with a distant past. Um, Right. Uh, could you tell us more about when and how the history of Ruth Welsh gets intertwined with the Nazis and the Nazi regime? Because I was trying to understand if this was something that even the higher-ups of the Nazi regime were interested in. I mean, was this a general interest or is it something that your grandfather particularly was interested in and it was more a, a sort of a niche thing or not? Very much the latter. Uh, it was much more of a niche thing. I mean, the langu this language was very obscure. Very few people knew about it back then, just as almost no one knows about it uh, uh, now. So this is very much a niche thing. But essentially what my grandfather did was say, aha, this niche thing is connected to some of the larger political questions that, that are addressed and debated and that are get you know, talked about by the Nazis, for example, racial pur purity. I can, he basically said, I can use my technique of tracing names and I can help you Nazis distinguish according to your ideology, who is German and who is Jewish, you know, to, to, put, to put it in a nutshell. So he, and then he, or he would say, Okay, so your Nazis tried to, oh, we Nazis, because he became a member, trying to keep German pure from foreign influence. Here, let me give you a list of Rotwelsch terms that have filtered back into German. We need to eliminate those terms. So yeah. I think he, or for example, he recommended that Jewish Germans should not be allowed to change their names. So he was very concerned about people hiding their identity by changing their names. So what he realized, and then he complains about how a lot of Rotwelsch speakers from that Rotwelsch milieu have assumed names or aliases or, you know, sort of uh, uh, names that are not their, uh, uh, th their real names. So what he basically did is use this very obscure, very niche topic, as you say, and then try to make it important by connecting it to this Nazi ideology. I think so. I think to some extent, I mean, I don't know, I can't look into the soul of my grandfather. It may be that he was a completely committed uh, uh, anti-Semite and Nazi. I don't know. But it's also possible, and sometimes I like to believe it, I like because it makes him a little less bad, that it was sort of an, op that, that he was an opportunist that he knew something about this very obscure topic, uh, history of names, and suddenly he felt like, oh, I see a way of making that it relevant to the, you know, to political powers and making it more important. So uh, some combination perhaps of those two, of those two, but it, it was very much a niche topic, uh, as you say, Ricardo, and, uh, uh, but one that suddenly seemed to resonate uh, in his mind with all these other political questions of race and identity and who is German, who is not German. And so um, 
but you also ask about the history of it and i would say he sort of comes at the tail end of a long history of uh, uh, anti-Semitic reactions to this language, a history that essentially starts with Martin Luther. This is why that early source is so important. And you know, it's well known, though not known enough, I think, just how anti-Semitic Martin Luther really was. And so it's one of the first sources about Rote Welsh, and it's a very negative source. And and Martin Luther, of course, he knows Hebrew because he's translating the the, the Old Testament, uh, uh, knows Hebrew, and he notices all these Hebrew terms in Rote Welsh. And so he says, this is a thief's language that comes from the Jews. Uh, uh, and so that uh, this association of Rote Welsh with Jewishness, and especially in a negative form, uh, then basically runs through the entire written archive of this language all the way to the Nazis. So the Nazis or some Nazis like my grandfather was, as you say, was not a big theme for the Nazis, but it, it in a sense, it, it, it worked perfectly well for the Nazis and because there's this long, but there's this long prehistory. So we shouldn't just blame, you know, the Nazis for this association. It's something that goes all the way to Martin Luther. But because there were people like your grandfather in the Nazi regime that were interested in the sort of language, do you know if there were any direct negative consequences for the Rotwelsch-speaking people? I mean, were they persecuted, for example, in the Nazi regime? They were, absolutely. In fact, the itinerants were one of the first groups to be sent to concentration camps. Um, I, 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 as I mentioned, I reconstruct biographies of a couple of Ruth Welsh speakers from the 17th century to the 20th century. And so the a 20th century figure uh, uh, illustrates this very, very nicely is a name as uh, uh, a man called Gregor Gog, uh, who is trying to who drifts into this itinerant lifestyle in the 20th century, and he uh, and is introduced, inducted into this Rote Welsh language. Um, but he realizes that these he wants to organize itinerants into almost like a it's unclear, not necessarily political party, but to create this kind of or to heighten the kind of solidarity of which you earlier spoke, the sense that there was a sense of community that we all belong to this one group of itinerant Rotwell speakers. And so he tries, he starts a journal uh, uh, by uh, Rotwell speakers. The journal is mostly in German, but there are Rotwell terms that get used uh, in, that, in that journal. Some itinerants even talk about Rote Welsh as, as their shared language and so on and so forth. And he's, but he's trying to or organize these itinerants. And that's why he's sometimes called the king of the tramps. It was sort of a label that, that stuck to him. And so this was in the late 20s. And so when the Nazis uh, 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 come to power, um, they prosecute him uh, and many other itinerants because for them they're, you know, they're considered asocial and they're sort of socially disruptive because they are itinerant and, and, and they're associated with the criminal underground and they're associated with this language. So they get prosecuted. He, Gregor Gark lands in, in these early uh, uh, concentration camps that are, were a little bit more makeshift. So he's actually, he, he's able to escape from one and he escapes to the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, so absolutely. So they, 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 I would say the Nazis prosecuted them not so much because of the, this language they spoke because many uh, 
Nazis who would prosecute them and, and hunt them down probably didn't care very much about the, this language. They were just, you know, Nazi SS as as stormtrooper types who hated itinerants. Uh, but itinerants definitely were a, a group explicitly targeted uh, very early on. So just to take a step back, and since you mentioned, for example, also Martin Luther and the sort of negative comments he made about Rothwelsch and Rothwelsch-speaking people, uh, was it the case that uh, since its inception and throughout the Middle Ages and so on, these people were, for example, discriminated by people across Europe, uh, across different European nations, or I mean, how were they dealt with by Europeans? Yeah. It absolutely. I think they very much discriminate. What we would now call discriminated against, in part because you know this was a period when when Europe, when when the idea of the nation state emerged after the end of the uh, uh, Thirty Years' War and the Peace of Westphalia where you have, you know, from the Middle Ages to, let's say, the 19th century, more and more control of borders, more and more of a sense that if you want to cross a border, you need permission, you need to papers, you need identities, you need to have a place in which you live, and so on and so forth. And just by their itinerant lifestyle, these the, the many Rothwell speakers violated all of these terms. And this is right. why they were always... Uh, uh, you know, in this kind of gray area of legality, and it's true that sometimes they were criminals and 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 so on and so forth. But even when they weren't, they were always in this gray area. So they were, and very much like, you know, another group that had a similar life but a very different language and a different sense of identity, namely the Sinti and Roma. Very, you know, we can imagine this the kind of. Ire, and often they were also confused. Often they were, they were seen as, as as Sinti or Roma groups because they were also itinerant and so on and so forth. Um, and in fact, there, as I mentioned, some uh, terms from Romani also, uh, uh, you know, migrated into uh, uh, into Rothwell. So absolutely, there are you know there are people who live on the margins who drift into this lifestyle, sometimes deliberately, sometimes through constraints. It's very, very interesting when that when they start to write about themselves, which only happens really in the 20th century in that journal put together by the King of the Trams, they they speak about their lives, certainly a lot in terms of hardship, and that makes total sense. But at the same time, they at least some of these writers also try to embrace it as a positive uh, 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 identity in a sense that, that this is a life they have chosen, that they reject modern life with, with its amenities and so on and so forth. Sometimes it gets a kind of quasi-communist uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 spin on the way they express that. So there, there is, you can definitely see, again, it's yet another way in which you can see a sort of identity or group identity or, or solidarity formed uh, uh, in response to that long history of persecution. Yeah. Right. So earlier I've asked you about, uh, I mean, I asked you basically if there were still any Rothwelsch-speaking people nowadays, but I mean, are there any remnants of these people? I mean, any descendants in Europe that still keep this sort of nomadic lifestyle? 
yes. So the the answer is yes. And 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 I I would have probably five years ago I would have said I don't think so. But I you know I've come to realize that that's actually wrong. And that's it's again because we don't see these groups, so we don't want to see them, or they live sort of below our uh, uh, radar screen. So through through uh, you know through sheer coincidence, uh, a newspaper wrote an article about this project of mine when I was sort of in the middle of it. And then different people started to write to me uh, saying, oh, I know some people who still speak versions of this language in this village in, in southern Germany or and so on and so forth. So they, I, people started to write to me about different sightings essentially of root vowels or remnants of root vowels and speakers. Um, and, and the most the longest and for me most fascinating was that group in, in Switzerland. Um, and it was, I, I, I did not meet with them, could not meet with them directly, but I had a sort of intermediary who did not belong to that group, but had a long family connection to that group. Um, and so um, had their trust and was able to speak to them and would help them from time to time in various ways and interact with them. So he offered to, uh, to ask them questions. So I started through him to ask them questions about their language and, and, and their life and became clear that they are they're very much, uh, um, uh, uh, they still exist. Um, they still have, they have a huge amount of skepticism and fear of anyone, official police, the state coming in, even researchers. One of the fascinating things they said is, this goes back to this question of a secret language. Uh, I said, it's not really as much of a secret language as a vehicle for survival and solidarity and so on and so forth, which I believe is true. But that uh, a speaker of Yenish, which is sort of a modern version of Ruth Welsh, uh, said that they often mislead if, if a researcher like me comes along and asks them about their language, they often make up false words or mislead them because they feel like they, for their own survival, they need to hold on to this language. It's, it's one of their tools and their sort of cultural possessions. Uh, right. And also said that once they feel like a certain word, meaning of a word has gotten out and is circulating, um, that they no longer use that word. So that there's a real sense of not interacting with most outsiders or only very carefully. And um, I, you know, I, and uh, it took me a while to process this, but that essentially the, the, the difference between someone like me, who's coming from the outside to understand their language and a policeman who is trying to keep them from, let's say, crossing a certain border that to their mind, those those two are very much in cahoots in some sense. And it's true throughout the history of that language. The people who tried to understand this language the most were the police. So there was, there was a very difficult, uh, um, it's very hard to, for, became very hard for me to figure out how to position myself in a sense with, with respect to them. Right. So uh, just one last question. By studying Rotwelsch, do you think that perhaps by the ways it got influenced by other languages in its inception and across its history, and perhaps the sort of functions it served, the sort of topics people used, uh, used it to talk the most about, that we can learn more about 
how languages in general develop and evolve? I mean, do you think we can extrapolate from Rotwelsch to other languages? Yes, I think I think so. And that for me was also sort of came as a surprise because when I started to study it, I thought, oh, this is something completely unique. And that's what drew me to it. This is something, you know, my uncle studied. I have this unique archive. No one knows about it. It's this very specific combination of languages that I've never heard of before that no one knows about. So I started thinking this is this very peculiar, very unusual thing, which it still is. But then as, as, as I got more and more into it, two things started to happen. The first was that I realized that they are actually lots of underground socio sociolects like it in other countries. So this was something that in a way happens whenever you have a milieu, especially a milieu that's sort of uh, on the outs with settled society that's persecuted in various ways, that milieu is going to just evolve its own sociolect. Uh, and it often happens very quickly. And sometimes it may not be as elaborate, it may not be as long as the history of Rotwelsch, but something like that happens all the time. So this seems to uh, uh, say something very general about how humans, how we interact and how we use language for survival, for sol solidarity, to, to, to create meaning, to, to, to operate in the world, essentially. And so to see that, that you know, lots of people, again, once people, some people heard about this project, they said, oh, have you heard about this secret language or that secret language? And so it, I have a long list of these languages. It, and it, so from thinking that this is something really unusual, I came away thinking that this is actually the most general, the most universal thing in the world. Uh, so that's one sort of general conclusion I drew, I drew from it. Um, and, and the other is that, that it, it seemed to say so much about, I started to think of it as a language of migration, uh, in part because the speakers were itinerant and migrated, uh, but also because there's so many lang different languages that got sort of combined in, in the lives of these speakers. And it just seemed to be, even though it's, there are not many speakers left, although, although some, and it's been fascinating to see how resilient uh, this language is, it also seemed to sort of resonate with our world uh, more generally, where we have more and more migration uh, for various political reasons, environmental reasons, and where I think we have to somehow start to come to grips mentally and in every other respect with, with the movement of peoples and languages and somehow Rotwelsch, though emerging from a very particular time and place uh, in many ways, uh, and one that seems very remote from us, seemed to be a kind of interesting test case or example of what that migration and fluidity uh, of peoples and languages could be. So that, that became for me the other way in which this very obscure and very remote and very specialized things suddenly seem to resonate uh, with our world in, in, in ways that, that, that surprised me. Okay, good. So uh, the book is again the language of Thebes, my family's obsession with the secret code the Nazis tried to eliminate. Uh, before we go, Dr. Puckner, would you like to mention where people can find your work on the internet? Oh, sure. I mean, I have a website, martinpuckner.com, uh, just my first and last name. And, there, uh, uh, you know, you'll find lots of 
information there. Uh, Martin Puckner have a Twitter uh, and and also on Facebook. F please connect with me. Uh, my last book, uh, Omonda da Escrita, was translated into Portuguese. I was very uh, happy with that. Uh, so you can find that also. Okay, great. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much, Ricardo. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hi, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. So to keep the channel sustainable and to keep it running, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page. You have all sorts of benefits there and any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lagurero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervois, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.